You're gonna love this topic and you're gonna be sad you brought grandma this morning. Uh, we're gonna talk about hell. You guys ready? Strap on your safety belts, here we go. The, uh, the, the topic of the day is hell. You're like, great, this is gonna be encouraging. Uh, well, it is encouraging if you actually uh, know the, the whole story. So we're gonna kind of take a look at that. Um, it starts here in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. It says in Isaiah 66, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your, your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Now pause for a second before we finish this up. What's that say? Um, well, there's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. If you've been studying with us here through this uh, book of Isaiah, it's given us an opportunity to, to sort of rehearse the way the, the whole thing's gonna shake out long-term. What's the future of this world look like? And we've seen how I believe the next thing on the list is the rapture of the church, where the church of Jesus Christ is taken up to heaven. Um, after that, there's a seven-year period called the tribulation period, seven years where wrath, uh, judgment, the wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Seven years. And then after that is Christ's return, the second coming of Christ. His first coming was when he was a babe born in Bethlehem, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem there. That was his first coming. Uh, his second coming is gonna be at the end of the tribulation. What about the rapture? Not a coming. That's where we go to meet the Lord in the air. First Thessalonians 4 tells us. Um, but after the seven years of tribulation, of wrath, the second coming of Christ, and that brings in the 1,000 year millennial kingdom. Uh, the Bible talks about. And some people have different views on how all, all this really shakes out, but um, I believe that that's a literal thousand years where Christ will rule and reign on this earth. Then at the end of that thousand years, there's a strange thing that's gonna happen where Satan will be loosed just for a short season after the thousand years to deceive many more people. Um, but after that, then all the people who've been rejecting God not, not following after the Lord, uh, uh, name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. They're all at the end of the millennial kingdom. They'll be brought to a place called the great white throne judgment where they'll be judged according to their works for their sins and they will be thrown into a place called hell. Um, after that, you say, what could happen after that? Well, what about the people that went to heaven? And what happens after that? Well, the Bible says after the millennial kingdom, the Lord's gonna prepare a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, we don't know much about that. The Lord just says, I'm gonna make a new heaven and a new earth. And, and, and I think we can say, and we'll all live happily ever after, uh, after that. The Lord's gonna bless that. Um, but that's the sort of the high level uh, timeline of events. So what Isaiah is saying here is he's saying, listen, there's gonna be at the end, a new heaven and a new earth, verse 22. And during that time, all the flesh, all people on the planet will come to worship the Lord the way it's supposed to be. It's gonna be a good time when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, great, Brett, that's what happens for the believer. Heaven, salvation, new heaven, new earth, uh, worshiping the Lord, it's gonna be glorious. But what about the unsaved? Well, that's the scary part. That's the horrifying part, and it's the one that's mentioned here in verse 24, and it's how Isaiah ends his book in kind of a brutal way. Check it out. Verse 24, and they shall go forth and look 
upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Boy, that's not a very nice way to end your book, Isaiah. We were doing so good with the new heaven and the new earth. Why don't we just leave it there? And the answer is because hell is real. It's funny how there's been movements. Heaven is real. And that's a great truth. But in some ways, a greater truth is hell is real. I mean, I'm so thankful for heaven, but I'm more thankful for heaven because I also believe that hell is real. And here's the problem. Um, there's a lot of people that don't take this Isaiah chapter 66, verses 20 through, through 24. They don't really take it at face value of really what, it, what it's saying. These little verses here are telling us there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth, but Isaiah verse 24 of chapter 66 is saying, but hell is real. And, and, and there's a language here that is kind of weird. You might say, what's this worm thing? What is Isaiah saying when, when he says, the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched? Well, the, the Jewish person of that day, it was an idiom that they would say that sounds weird to us, uh, but it has to do with your inner man of your soul, the part of you that thinks and feels. It's like hardware and software. The hardware is your body, you know, your bones and your skin and the tissue of, that makes up your brain. But the software, there's a part of you that's, that, that thinks and feels and that's your soul. And when it says here in Isaiah, when he says the worm shall not die, it's talking about your inner person will not die. Did you know that the Bible speaks of two resurrections? There's an eternal resurrection unto life and there's an eternal resurrection unto death. Um, which one are you a part of? See, this is where this the discussion, the topic of hell is of real importance. And therein lies a problem. There's three points I'd like to make about hell. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about hell. The first one is the problem. When we talk about hell as Christians, we have a big problem today. What's the problem? Well, it's people's view on hell and what it really is and what it isn't. And there's been a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. Again, I don't claim to be the expert on this. I, I believe the Bible gives us everything we need to know about hell. Um, the first thing you need to know is it's real. That's one of the things I think that's been sort of purported these last days, that hell is not even real, that it's a made up thing of humanity, but God wouldn't create a place called hell. Um, but he did, Bible says he did, and we even know why he did it. The Bible tells us all the details we wanna know. So what's the problem? Well, the first thing is I think we, our culture, we've made sort of a joke out of hell and out of Satan himself, you know, it's, 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 a, it's sort of a laughing matter. In fact, we diminish, you know, this idea of hell and the reality of hell by even using the word hell as sort of a derogatory term of a cuss word kind of thing. Um, and and it's, it's really, it's sort of undermined the, the notion if hell is real, if I'm Satan, I'd wanna make people not really think hell's that big a deal. So I'd, I'd make it a byword where people say, man, it's hotter than hell in here. Listen, as your pastor, no, it's not. Hell is really gonna be, well, torturously, well, I'm, I get ahead of myself. The problem is we've sort of made a joke out of it. Uh, by the way, I do kind of like this, this one, the joke of, uh, that I saw uh, recently, this one. Oh, we got rid of the hot coals years ago and switched them to Lego pieces. 
So now he's got to walk barefoot on Lego pieces. Uh, or, or maybe you think of Satan as sort of a little guy in red pajamas, like the emperor's new groove, how he's up on your shoulder with a pitchfork, that that's Satan. Or you can buy your children this little cuddly play toy, this little uh, fuzzy devil. Um, uh, and, and, and that's sort of what we've done with this idea of Satan. And now it's become just a ha ha ha, the little red guy in pink pajamas running around with a pitchfork. Now, if you ask me, that's mission accomplished for Satan. Because if people don't believe that hell exists or that it's bad or that it's real, it makes people sort of cavalier about their future and eternity and, and all that really matters. If hell is real, if what the Bible says about hell is true, you and I, we should be feverishly concerned about hell and are we gonna have anything to do with it? And I hope that you understand, I'm not just trying to freak you out for the sake of freaking you out, but I do wanna freak you out. I do think people should be afraid of hell. If there's ever anything in the universe a person should be afraid of, it's, it's basically this concept of hell. The problem is no one wants to believe in hell anymore. The rationalist tries to say intellectually, they sort of convince themselves, you know, how could a God of love, uh, you know, send anyone to hell, you know? But the truth is hell, it's not God sending people there. I hope you know that. But God allowing people to have their way. When a person goes to hell, it's God saying, you wanna go to hell? I guess you really can if you want to. It's not why he made it, by the way. God did not make his, this place called hell for people to go there. That's not why he did it. I'll show you why he did it in a few minutes. Um, you know, but the truth is every one of us in this room and watching online is in one of two categories. Category number one, those who say thy will be done and those who say my will be done. The person who says, Lord, I wanna follow you and your plan and your purpose. Well, that person is really gonna be headed to heaven. But the person says, nope, my will, I want it my way and I'm the one who decides my destiny. Well, the Bible says that person is headed for hell. Well, Brett, you're sounding like a fire and brimstone preacher, talking about hell and stuff like that. We don't like that. Um, you know what's interesting about going verse by verse through the Bible is it forces you to talk about things. You know, there's a lot of churches today, you'll never hear a sermon about hell anymore. Joel Osteen, maybe you've heard of him, one of the biggest churches in America, he never talks about hell. And um, he'll, he'll never talk about how you gotta repent of your sin and otherwise there's hell in store. And, but he, with his nice smiley face and probably a nice guy and a nice mullet, man, he's just there telling you uh, how you're gonna live victoriously and you need Jesus so you can have victory in your life. But that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to say you're either gonna go to hell or not and the gospel is the only way you don't go to hell. And the problem is we've watered down the message that Christianity means you're gonna be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you read Christian books, you think it's all about your dating life, being a Christian. Or maybe your financial portfolio will be rich if you're a Christian. It's not what Christianity's about. Christianity is about humanity's future is to go to hell because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one, the Bible says. And that's why you and I need an answer. We need the answer to keep you and me and us out of hell. Brett, you're sounding, this is, I brought grandma today and now I'm really bummed out. Oh, I haven't even got it, got it started. Um, speaking of fire and brimstone, have you ever heard of this guy? Uh, Jonathan Edwards, 
um, preached this sermon. This little pamphlet was actually handed out shortly after he preached the sermon. But uh, Edwards was considered and is considered one of the greatest American theologians uh, in the United States history. In, in uh, the 1700s, uh, Edwards was, was brilliant. <clears throat> At the age of six years old, this guy learned uh, complete and perfect Latin, you know, the, uh, the academic language of Latin. He entered Yale when he was at the ripe old age of 13 and graduated from Yale at the age of 15. Um, It would be shortly after that, he was ordained at the age of 19 as a minister and then taught as a professor at Yale uh, by the age of 20. But later he became the president of Princeton. Harvard granted him both bachelor and master's degrees on the same day. Um, The guy was brilliant, but he was best known and famous for maybe what could be argued as one of the most famous sermons for sure in American history. And it's this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Does that sound like a fire and brimstone sermon? Well, it was. But see, that was uncharacteristic of this guy, uh, Jonathan Edwards. He preached the sermon Sunday, July 8th, 1741 while he was ministering at a tiny little, tiny little church uh, in Connecticut. By the way, a group of women were praying in that region for revival in their land because things were bad. Things weren't bad in 1741. Well, if you know your American history, did you know that if you know your American history, some of the most evil, sinful days of our nation, or even before we were a nation, the history of this America um, was the worst at the early 1700s. Did you know that? Like, you know, some people think we must be the worst today with all our things that we're doing and sinful stuff that the world's into. Well, the early 1700s were horrible. And all you gotta do is kind of read the history of the 1700s. So this preacher comes along and he preaches this sermon. Uh, and, and, you know, when as Edward, he rose to speak that morning, he quietly announced that his text would be Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, that says, their foot shall slide in due time. The idea of the wicked, their foot is slipping toward hell. And he preached this kind of horrific, scary sermon. Now, what's interesting, even though it sounds very fire and brimstone, um, for this, uh, you know, he, he was famous, he'd written, and there were thousands of sermons you can read of Edwards. And he wasn't normally this, this fiery, but even when he delivered this, um, he spoke simply and softly. He didn't wave his arms or gesture, or, you know, or yell or any pound the pulpit. He didn't do that. He just quietly spoke, and, and he, he said that the, the unsaved, the sinner, he said, you are hanging over the fire of hell like a spider on the web. And then he, then he continued, he said, oh sinner, consider your fateful danger. Uh, he said, the unconverted are now walking over the very pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places where this covering is so weak that it will not bear your weight. And the, the, the places are not seen, he said. Now, by his te- as he was teaching about hell and everybody slipping into hell, you could hear cries in the congregation. People started weeping uh, of, of just kind of feeling convicted of their sins. And he even had to pause and appeal for calm. Calm down, everybody. And then he concluded, he said, let everyone that is outside of Christ now awake from the wrath to come, the wrath of the almighty God undoubtedly hanging over the great part of this congregation. He said, let us all fly out of Sodom. Well, as it turns out, 
um, the people that were there, they write about it. They said there were strong farmer men, you know, clinging to the pews like they were slipping into hell. They were like grabbing on. Uh, uh, others were crying uncontrollably in the sanctuary. And, and, um, and, and as it turns out, by the end of the day, they started going home and telling everybody, their neighbors about the sermon. By the end of the day, more than 500 people repented of their sins and confessed Christ as their savior. It would shortly be after that, they took these pamphlets and started passing them around in the Americas, you know, with all the people in the colonies and what have you. And thousands and thousands of people converted to Christ because of this one sermon on hell. It was called, by the way, the Great Awakening in America. And it was at that point in the mid 1700s that there was a real revival and a return to Christ. And most attribute it to this single sermon on hell from Jonathan Edwards. You know, we, we look at our ancient guys, you know, the 1776 founders of this nation, the signing of the Declaration, the Constitution, um, the Bill of Rights, and we see sort of a, the fingerprints of God on all that stuff. But you have to understand, there was something that brought those men to a godly perspective. Our nation was much more uh, dialed in at that point than they were in 1741. The reason I share that with you is I believe the United States, we need another awakening just like they had back in 1741. We need that today as we have pretty much, you know, uh, embraced a very godless society and a godless world. Now, some of you might say, well, Brett, I don't know if I like people who preach on hell. Well, did you know that one of the most loving, compassionate, kind-hearted people that ever walked this earth liked to talk about hell? He did it a lot. His name, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Did you know that Jesus preached on hell more than he talked about heaven? Check it out, don't, don't just take my word for it, but if you read the gospel narratives, you see Jesus talking about hell all the time. In fact, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter nine. Flip over, keep your finger at Isaiah and go over there to Mark chapter nine. And I wanna show you one of these places where Jesus preached and was a scary one. And he actually even is gonna quote Isaiah 66, 24. The text that we've chosen for our topic today, Jesus is gonna quote that. Now here's an assignment, and this is a trick question. How many times is Jesus gonna quote this in the text that I'm about to read? Uh, how many times is he gonna quote Isaiah 66, 24? Let's take a look. It says here in, uh, pardon me, Mark 9, Verse 42 is where we'll pick it up. Red letters where Jesus was preaching. In Mark 9, 42, it says, and whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck that he were cast into the sea. Does that sound like a bad day? Having a millstone? What's a millstone look like? Well, Jesus said this in a place called Capernaum. And in Capernaum, in the New Testament, did you know what they were famous for? If sort of Beaverton is famous for Nike, and if Hills, Hillsborough is famous for Intel, Capernaum was famous for millstones. When they dug up Capernaum archeologically, they found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millstones. In fact, I got a picture of one of these millstones uh, there from Capernaum uh, last time we were here. And, and that stone that's on the top is the round part that they would grind over that centerpiece, pouring the corn in and it would grind it to powder and what have you. But Jesus was standing there probably pointing to millstones saying, it'd be better for you to have one of these millstones tied around your neck and have you thrown into the sea than to offend one of these little ones. And by the way, 
I'm so deeply concerned about our culture right now because we're offending little ones all the time. We're doing it with our curriculum in our public schools. It's crazy what we're teaching our kids. We're offending little children with curriculum today. And we could go on and on the things we're doing for little children, but what about abortion? Abortion is offensive to a little one who's unborn. Well, Brett, I don't believe it's a person. I believe it's a piece of fetal tissue. Well, that's not being honest. Look at the scans. Look at the little life that's within the mother's womb that can kick and interact with the mom, the prenatal influence that's going on. And, and you know, th these, these people that just say it's a ball of tissue, they're not being honest. God, the reason we Christians are pro-life is because God in his word says that that's a person being formed in the mother's womb. It's not the mother's body. It's a whole nother person that God calls a person. That's why we have a problem when a woman says, it's my body, you can't say anything about it. No, it's another life that you were bringing into the world. But if, if somebody wants to take that life, we call that murder. So we're pro-life. Well, I'm pro-choice. No, that's just a nice way of saying pro-death. Pro-death of a little child. Brett, that's horrible. You're talking about hell. Now you're talking about abortion. Well, the thing is, here's Jesus saying it's better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than to offend one of these little ones. I think there's gonna be a lot of people who have to answer for all the, the millions of aborted children. But it only, Jesus is only getting warmed up here in Mark. He goes on, by the way, and, and says this, as we keep reading in verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 45. <clears throat> Excuse me, and if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter, into, uh, enter halt or lame into life than having two feet to be cast into hell and into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom with one eye, the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Question, how, how many times did Jesus quote Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24? Three, Three times. Now, some of you are not so confident in that. You're like, uh, I only saw one. Um, and that's if you have the NIV, the nearly inspired version. No, just kidding, I'm messing with you. <laughs> NIV is a great translation of the Bible. Um, but why did the NIV leave those out? In fact, you're missing verses in your NIV Bible. Like for example, look up, um, you know, uh, Mark, you know, chapter nine, verse 44. Go ahead, you NIV people. Um, do you find it? It's there's no verse 44 there if you have an NIV, most of yours. Um, there's also not a verse 46. It goes uh, verse 43, verse 45, verse 47, verse 48. Why is that the case? Don't be freaked out by this. It's okay. Don't be mad at your NIV Bible. Um, here's what it is. The King James text, the, those that translated in 1611, the King James Bible used a different manuscript from the Greek language to translate theirs where the NIV used a different uh, or a different manuscript to translate and NIV. Now you say, but that bothers me that there's a difference. Here's the good news. In all the real translations of the Bible, they're translations. In all the real translations, 
you're still gonna get the gospel and everything you need to know for solid doctrine in a good legitimate translation like New American Standard, uh, the NIV, the ESV, there's good ones. Now there's fake ones. There's fake translations so-called. And that's where like cults will write their own version of the Bible. Watch out for those. Uh, for example, I'll name them. Uh, New World Translation, run for your life. That's, that's some boys in Brooklyn that work for the Watchtower Society that sort of retranslated the Bible to fit their weird religion called Jehovah's Witness. But you're just being, okay, abortion, Jehovah's Witness, hell. You're just hitting on all cylinders today. I'm just being honest with you. Um, so be careful. Uh, but the reason that's, that's not in all three mentions in the NIV is because it wasn't in that manuscript that was used. Um, all, but it was in the one that the King James guys used. Either way, Jesus quoted at least once, probably three times, he quoted Isaiah 66, verse 24, saying, it'd be better for you to cut your hand off and enter into eternal life with just one hand than to go to hell with two hands where the worm doesn't die and the fire does not, or is not quenched. Where he quotes from Isaiah, speaking of hell. In other words, he's saying it better to, now, now some of you are saying, brother, are you talking about how we ought to cut off our hands and our feet and poke out our eyeball? Um, does anybody remember, if you're old enough, Little House on the Prairie, the episode where Carolyn Ingalls, she got this fever and she had this eye, something going on with her eye where she was totally hallucinating, remember this? And she opens her Bible and reads Mark chapter nine where she's supposed to cut out her eyeball with a knife. And she takes it literally and so she gets her knife and she's like, she get ready to cut her eye. This was Little House on the Prairie. Like this is like horror show, you know? You know, you're supposed to be a family show. Now, thank the Lord, Charles showed up just in time, just before she sticks the knife and pokes her eye out. Charles comes up and saves her and gets the fever to go down and then she comes to her senses. But, but Pastor Brett, what is the Bible saying here? Why should you poke your eye out or cut off your hand? It's not a literal thing that you're supposed to do. It's something that Jesus is using drastic language to say this, it would be better for you to enter into you know, heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. Uh, if your eye is that, it's, it's talking about what you see. Your hand speaks of that which you do. Your foot speaks of where you're going. Any place you're going, what you're doing, what you're seeing, if it's gonna lead you to hell, it, you gotta deal drastically with that. That's what Jesus is saying. Deal drastically with your sin and, and make sure that you're not messing around because nobody should go where the worm doesn't die, that's your soul, and the fire is not quenched. Eternal torment in hell. Jesus was preaching here about hell. That's what's going on. So that's why I think we gotta be careful when people make a joke out of hell or try to diminish hell. By the way, one of the things people try to argue uh, today, you'll hear people say, is hell is a place of annihilation. If you go to hell, uh, you'll just be destroyed, never to cease or never to uh, live again. You just cease to exist in all the cosmos. That's something that some people do. And they, they take that from a phrase in the Bible that says it's everlasting destruction. And so that's the kind of language they use. But I'm gonna show you today that the Bible doesn't really use that language as much as it uses language of eternal torment. And I'll show you what I mean there. But to reject the dualistic outcome of heaven or hell is to really reject what the Bible says. And I believe it misrepresents who Christ really is and what God says about sin 
and salvation, death and hell or eternal life. To say there's no hell leaves gaping holes in any pretense to understand the justice of God or the righteousness of God. To say there's no hell is to say that God is condoning a rebellious, sinful world and it's no big deal. To say there's no hell um, says that, you know, God doesn't care that people have been murdered and beaten and raped and killed and pillaged and plundered throughout the history of the ages. And God's just indifferent toward that. If you don't believe there's punishment of death and hell is to say that God has no justice and no sense of right or wrong. It's important for God's people to acknowledge what God says. There's a wrath that's being stored up from God to be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And that's what the Bible teaches. Hell is real. And I believe hell, while some people try to rationalize, well, if God is love, then he wouldn't send people to hell. Hell is the ultimate expression of a just creator. Um, you know, I don't believe the Lord wants to send people to hell. That's one thing you should know. If you read what Peter writes in his epistle, he says, God would that none should perish, but that everyone would have eternal life. That's what the Bible says. Um, Ezekiel 33, 11, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And here's the Lord who lovingly wants to see the whole world saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's anyone, believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the opposite of hell. Everlasting death, that's hell. Everlasting life, that's heaven. And so Jesus taught about this and, uh, and man, how thankful I am for, uh, for the fact that there is heaven and hell. And I'll show you more about that. Now, who goes to hell? Let's talk about the number, point number two, the people. Who are the, the people that are gonna go to hell? Is that something we should be concerned about? Who goes to hell? I think it's important. Um, and there's really two separate sort of groups, we could say, that goes to hell. First of all, the devil and his angels go to, goes to hell. Um, I hope you understand that. And you can jot down this scripture uh, that kind of explains this. And this tells us also why God created hell. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It says, and these are red letters again, Jesus preaching once again on hell. He says, then shall he say unto them on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is telling us why, why hell was prepared or, or invented or created. It was a place where the devil and his angels would be placed for all of eternity in everlasting fire. Um, that's Matthew 25, verse 41. But you know when you're by the pool on the summer day and a bunch of your friends start to push you in? You may know you're going in, but do you wanna go in alone? all your buddies, do you want them just to have a clean, free shot, just push you in the pool and have them all laugh? Or are you gonna be like me and take as many of them as you can with you? Man, if my buddies are gonna push me in the pool, I'm, take, I'm gonna grab hair and shirts and toes and whatever I can find to make sure that as many of them go in with me. I believe that's what Satan wants to do. I believe Satan is not stupid and he knows that he's doomed to hell. One of the things I think he's alive and well wanting to do is he's called the prince of this world right now and the God of this world right now. He's called that in the Bible. I believe he wants to drag as many people into hell with him. And the problem, the sad truth is he's gonna be certainly successful with that. 
Who else goes to hell? Number two on our list is people whose names are not written in the book of life. You see, the narrative is clear. Um, and I should say it's clear. It's a little confusing if you don't read your whole Bible and kind of put it all together. But if you've spent some of your life reading the Bible, this all starts to come pretty clear. And I wanna help, help us see this as clearly as possible. How do we know people are gonna go to this place called hell? Well, um, you can keep your finger in Isaiah still if you want and go with me to Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Um, there's a narrative of how hell, the, the final place of weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, but eternal fire and burning, loneliness, but like just the evil place that hell is. Um, who goes there? Well, let's read from Revelation chapter 20. I already told you the timeline. Remember, it's all gonna come down at the end of the thousand years called the millennial kingdom. And we'll pick it up in Revelation chapter 20, verse seven. It says in Revelation 20, verse seven, it says, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle to number the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, for you prophecy buffs, that's not the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38, different, whole different deal there. Verse nine, so they went up to the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints around uh, or about and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where, there, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Does that sound like annihilation to you? No, they're gonna be tormented night and day, forever and ever. They're, they'll be cognizant, uh, conscious. Uh, the, the, they're gonna be aware. Um, that's uh, the horrifying part of hell. It's eternal torment is what it's called. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. There's a great white throne and there's people that are standing there that they'd love to run and flee, but there's nowhere for them to go. They're stuck at this place called the great white throne. And verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things written in their books according to their works. And the sea, another way of saying in the book of Revelation, the nations of the world, gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this is where some people get kind of confused. Um, and we'll clear up these confusions here in a second. But you need to understand, after Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom deceives more people, it's at that point he and his fallen angels will be thrown into the final place we know as hell. Shortly thereafter, there's the great white throne judgment where all people who've ever rejected Jesus, the Messiah, who've ever rejected God and his plan of salvation, and they're the ones who are saying, not you know, my, thy will be done, but my will be done. The people we talked about earlier who don't want anything to do with God, they will stand before God and be judged according to their works. 
By the way, this is where confusion comes, where people think, I go to heaven if I have good works, and you go to hell if you have bad works. It's not the way it works. We all have bad works. We've all fallen short, we've all sinned. We all, if you put it on the scales, we'd lose that one, no matter who you are. The difference between the saved and the unsaved, if you're saved, you're not gonna get to heaven by your good works. You're gonna get to heaven by his grace. Undeserved, unearned favor that God says, I'll give it to you. It's free for the taking. If you accept Christ, you get to go to heaven because of him, not because of you. But if you go to hell, that's because of you, not of him. A person who stands before the great white throne, judgment, and says, I, I'm a good person. I gave to the United Way and I paid my taxes and I didn't you know, put my garbage on the neighbor's lawn. That's not gonna help you. The Bible says we've all sinned so much that even our, things that we don't even think are sin are sinful. And if you wanna stand before God and gamble and say, I think my righteousness is gonna save me from, from the fire of hell, the Bible says no one's gonna be saved unless you go through Jesus Christ, who's the perfect one, who was the way, the truth, the life, the savior of the world. So this great white throne judgment, these are people whose names are not written in the book of life. They're people that say, I reject God, I reject the cross of Jesus Christ, and I'm gonna do it by myself. You're gonna go with Frank Sinatra and say, I'll do it by way. But that's only gonna lead to this place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, eternal fire and torment. So who goes to hell? The unbeliever, the unrepentant, the person who doesn't accept Christ and ask for forgiveness of their sins. Um, they're on their own. That's the, pe the place, uh, the people. So you got, number one, the problem, nobody believes in hell anymore. You got the people, the devil and his fallen angels and people who've rejected Christ. Number three, let's talk about the actual place, hell. And here's where a lot of confusion lies because Here's how this shakes out. The Bible has a bunch of different words. If you go back to the original language of the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament, there's a bunch of different words for the word hell. In the English, we just clumsily say it's like hell. It's like the word love. There's only one word for us in our language of love. And so we use it very clumsily. Uh, the Bible has four, maybe five uh, good words for the word love. Um, when I say, I love my wife, that means something. But I also could say, I love hot fudge Sundays. Is that the same love? Well, no, yeah, I mean, the love for your wife hopefully is a little different than the love for hot fudge Sunday. I love puppies, or I love this or that, or I love you. You know, you, you, could, you could even say to a friend, man, I love you, but that's a different kind of love. In the Greek, there's the, you know, uh, eros love, which is like an erotic love. There's phileo love, which is kind of a brotherly kind of love. There's agape love. I mean, we can talk about all these different loves, but it's, it's different words in the original language. Same thing with the word hell. We use the word hell, but there's a bunch of different words. Let me show you some of those words. Number one, you can jot it down, sheol. There's a, there's a word that is used in the Bible all the time called sheol. And when that word is used, it's, it's, it's often translated as the word hell. But technically the definition of the word sheol is better translated as the grave. Six feet under, in a hole in the ground, in a box, pushing up daisies. That's, that's really what the word Sheol means. But the word Sheol is often coupled with the word Hades. And that's the second word you should jot down. Sometimes they're the phrase Sheol and Hades, they're used together. It's when you die and get put under the ground, but then your soul 
goes to Hades if you're an unbeliever. Now, is Hades hell? Well, there's kind of a yes and no here. Uh, but I'm gonna say no, because it's a different place. We all think of hell as this one place, and there is a final place that's called hell, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Hades might be something that if you haven't read your Bible and don't know the details, you might have missed the memo on this one. There's a place that the Bible speaks of that's sort of Hades. It's, it's like a temporary hell. And uh, it's, the whole thing is called Abraham's bosom. And there's two sides of Abraham's bosom. One side is called paradise, and the other side is called hell. Brett, you're making this stuff up. Nope. Um, read Luke chapter 16. This is where Jesus explains this. Um, remember, the, there's the rich guy who's living sumptuously, picking out, has a rich table, and he's got a purple robe, and living large, you know, Mr. Bling. But then there's the homeless guy that's got scabs and wounds all over his body, and he's just lying at the foot of the guy's table, just trying to get a scrap from his table, and the dogs are coming and licking on his wounds. It's a pretty horrible picture, <clears throat> but that's the picture Jesus tells in Luke 16. Well, those two guys, Lazarus, who's the poor guy, and then the rich dude, they both die. They both go to Abraham's bosom. One, the one guy, the poor guy who's got the scabs of the wounds, he ends up going to paradise side, the good side. But the rich guy, he ends up in the Hades side of Abraham's bosom. And if you recall, the guy is tormented. The rich guy is tormented in that place. Let me read to you what he says there. And again, jot it down, Luke 16. Um, and I'm gonna pick it up uh, in the story in verse uh, 20, 23. And it says, um, the man was uh, put in hell, is the word there. And the Greek word is Hades. And he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He saw Abraham and, and Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. And so this rich guy cries to Abraham, have mercy on me and let Lazarus come that he may dip his finger in water and, dip, and put the tip of his finger on my, on my tongue to cool the, the tongue. He says, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received the good things you had, but Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. All this beside, there's a great, uh, it says between us, there's a great gulf that's fixed, a wall. And he says, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. So the guy cries and said, well then if, if, if he can't come and give me a dip of water, then go and tell my, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers, I have five brothers, so that they don't come to this place of torment. Go tell them, Abraham says. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What's Moses and the prophets? Well, in those days of Jesus' time, to say Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, that's the Bible. The Jewish Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, he's saying the Old Testament has told you of this, and you should have read about this. And your brothers need to read about this from the Bible. And he says, no, Abraham, if one goes from the dead and tells them, they'll believe and repent. And Abraham said, if they hear, that, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though rose from the dead. Jesus tells this story about these two guys, and one goes to Hades and one goes to paradise. By the way, in this time period and before that in the Old Testament, when a person died, where did they go? Well, the answers from this Luke 16 is pretty clear. If you were a believer in God, you'd go to paradise, the one side of Abraham's bosom. 
if you were an unbeliever and a sinner, you'd go to the, the Hades side. Now, question, what about you when you die? Well, the story's a little different right now and I'll tell you why. Jesus did something. He died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. That changed some of the stuff. Part of Abraham's bosom has been put out of business. No more open. What's, what part of that? It's, remember when Jesus died on the cross? He, with the thief next to him, the thief that believed, remember what he said? Today you will be with me where? In heaven? No, in paradise. That's a different place. It's the good side of Abraham's wisdom. Well, Jesus went to paradise? Abraham's wisdom? Yes. And he did there to do something that I'll show you here in a second. He went there with a real purpose. But the idea is when you died before Jesus died on the cross, when you died, you would either go to Hades or paradise. That was the way it worked out. But after Jesus died on the cross, he went to paradise with the thief on the cross, but he did something there that Ephesians tells us. And there's other places in the Bible that talks about this too, but Ephesians, jot this down in your notes. Ephesians chapter four, verses eight through nine, it says this. It says, whereof he saith, when he ascended on high, speaking of Jesus, he led captivity captive. Now that's a King James way of saying people that were in captivity in a certain place, he set them free. Who did he set free? He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, verse nine says, he that ascended into heaven, Jesus, what is it? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Huh? What does the Bible tell us? Here's how this shakes out. When Jesus died on the cross, he first descended and he went into Abraham's bosom where the people in paradise were, Old Testament saints, along with the thief on the cross that died next to him. All those people were there and he led them free. He set them free from paradise and brought them to a place that we would now think of as heaven, eternity with Christ. So paradise was shut down, heaven's up and running now, and that's good news. If you die as a believer today, I believe, you go straight to heaven. Now some of you went to churches that taught about soul sleep. Don't send me letters on this. I've already got hundreds of them um, from people that are Seventh-day Adventists or others that say soul sleep is the only truth in the Bible. Nope, I, I believe when you die, you are not in a soul sleep until the resurrection. And there's evidence of that, like the thief on the cross. Jesus didn't, didn't say, today with me, today you shall fall asleep for a couple thousand years until the resurrection. No, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he led those people into heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, you know, uh, David, when he talked about his, um, his little child that died, remember the baby? He said, I will be with you soon. When I die, I will be with you. Not in some soul sleep state. That's just, I think, something that people have come up with uh, for their, to match their other doctrines. So when you die as a Christian today, I believe you are one who goes straight to heaven to be with the Lord and with all those who are in heaven. And I won't even start on the eternal now and time and space and all that and who's gonna be in heaven when you get there. We're not even gonna go there. But the idea is when you die as a Christian, you go to heaven today. But this is where it gets a little weird. If you die today as an unbeliever, you go to this place called Hades to this day. It's that 
bad side of Abraham's bosom, a place where there's, you know, like Luke 16 said, the guy said, it's torment. My, my tongue is, you know, I need water and I'm this tormenting heat. It's, it's really like a, a little place called Hades that's kind of like hell. That's why people get confused about these things. So you've got Sheol, you've got Hades. Number four word you come across as far as hell translated, and I'll do this one really quickly, Tartarus. Second Peter chapter two, verse four, I'll read it to you. It says, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell, Greek word, Tartarus, and delivered them into chains and darkness, reserved unto judgment, and spared not the world, but saved Noah and the eighth person. Um, who, who are these demons that were particularly disobedient? You gotta read Genesis six to hear that story. There was a bunch of demons that did some stuff that was extremely bad. And the Lord said, because you guys have done this, you're being locked away in a place called Tartarus. And they're gonna be loosed, by the way, again someday at the tribulation period. There's gonna be some demons that were particularly bad that are gonna be released again. And that's a place called Tartarus. Again, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that one, but you Bible prophecy buffs should look into that one. That one's strange. The fourth word here that is translated from the word, you know, uh, or to the word hell is the word Gehenna. Now, let me just say this. When we all traditionally talk about hell, that's an everlasting place of fire and brimstone and lake of fire, that's Gehenna. That's the one we traditionally think of. If you didn't know about Hades, and you thought we were always just generally talking about hell. This is the hell we're thinking of most of the time, Gehenna. Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 33, sort of gives us a little bit of that. When we, when we look at the word Gehenna, it's translated. Um, let me just read this to you. It's Matthew 3, 33. Um, it says, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of Gehenna? That's what Jesus said. Um, and when we first read that word Gehenna, it, it starts to make sense of the confusion uh, when I read to you the Revelation 20 account. Do you remember when we were reading in Revelation chapter 20, talking about how you know death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire? It's almost like when you read the English translation of Revelation 20, it says, and hell and hell was cast into hell. And you're like, I don't get it. But what, what the Greek New Testament says, when you read, it says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. It's saying that after the, the uh, great white throne judgment, Sheol and Hades is the words used there, will be cast into Gehenna. Are you starting to see what's happening here? Right now, if you're not a believer, you go to Hades. But after the thousand year millennial reign, there's gonna be people that'll be brought out of Hades, out of death and hell, Hades and Sheol. They'll be put before the Lord on a great white throne judgment and judged according to their deeds, which are sinful. And when their names are not found in the book of life, the final destination will be Gehenna, where they're cast with Satan and his fallen angels into the eternal place called Gehenna, which is an eternal place of torment. Um, let me show you some scriptures real fast here about Gehenna. And you can jot these down if you want to. Um, you guys that are at home, you can pause if I'm going too fast. <laughs> uh, but it, tough if you're here. Uh, <laughs> everlasting punishment, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. It's not everlasting annihilation. It's everlasting punishment. Also, Gehenna is described in the Bible, the Greek word used there, eternal condemnation. 
Mark 3, 29, aren't you glad that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Hell is a place of eternal condemnation. Um, it's also eternal judgment, Hebrews chapter six, verse two, and this one, eternal destruction. Now, some people say, see, this is annihilation. You're destroyed forever and you cease to exist. I believe that the other descriptions of Gehenna don't fall in line with this 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. And so the idea is a life destroyed that once was viable is now destroyed, the, uh, the destruction of one's life. Um, man, we can keep going. Eternal fire, uh, Matthew 18, eight through nine, Matthew 25, uh, verse 41. Also that Gehenna is an unquenchable fire and that fits with our Isaiah 66 scripture where the, the fire will not be quenched. It's, it's a eternal fire and also eternal torment. Uh, Revelation 19, 20, Revelation 20, 10. Um, all of these describe this place called Gehenna. You will not be playing cards with your buddies drinking beer in Gehenna. That's the cartoon version of hell. You're not gonna be stumbling on Legos. Um, it's a place of outer darkness, total isolation. You won't be with anyone except for your own condemnation. It's like the most horrible uh, thing. How could God send people to hell a place like this? Well, I don't remember where I got this, this statement. Um, I got it years and years ago and I wrote it in my notes, but I didn't say who it was. So whoever said this, good for them. But think, think of this with me. Hell is the chosen place of the person who loves self more than God, who loves sin more than his savior, who loves this world more than God's world. Judgment is that moment when God looks at the rebellious and says, your choice will be honored. Do you see that God's not sending people to hell? We send ourselves there by our own actions, by our own behaviors, and by us living a life of sin. We're the ones who sin. And God is saying, I, I would that none should perish. I want everyone to be saved, but it's up to you. God leaves it up to you. He gives you a free will. And if you wanna use your free will to go to hell, you can. And sad to say, there's gonna be millions of people who choose that option. I'm not gonna repent of my sin. I'm not gonna, you know, uh, you know, I'm not gonna be one of those dupes that believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, if that's your position, according to the Bible, your destination is Gehenna and it's gonna be horrifying and bad. Speaking of using the word hell in a derogatory context, some of you are like, bro, are you trying to scare the hell out of me? Pretty much. I really would love to do that. I, I would hope that I, I could scare you guys just like Jonathan Edwards because you need that to be something. If it's real, you should be scared. Well, Brett, I don't know if I like that. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. If hell is real and true, it's something worthy to be afraid of. But the idea is not to be afraid without any help. The idea is to say, um, then I need an answer. And I'm here to tell you what the Bible teaches about hell is so powerful and real, but so what do we do with this? What do we do with this concept of hell? Man, the answer is so beautiful. It's so beautiful, but it's also simple. The idea is simply this, to repent. Just repent. The word repent means change your mind, do an about face, and change your mind. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose God. Um, remember I said you're either one who says, thy will be done, God, or my will be done. And repentance is to say, okay, Lord, I changed my mind. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Man, you gotta be saved. See, what do we do now? There's, there's um, three words that I'd like to kind of consider um, with you. First of all, consideration, consideration. Consider which way you go and do you know where you're gonna go? Do you know for sure if you're gonna go to heaven or hell? If you've repented of your sins and confessed with your mouth that you believe that Jesus Christ died for you and you accept that he, his penalty of, of death on the cross satisfied what you owed. And when you accept that and, and believe in Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. Saved from what? That's where so many pastors saying, becoming a Christian will make you happy or wealthy or your marriage will be better. Oh, it might be those things, it might not be. But that's not what you're being saved from. You're being saved from hell. And you're being saved to heaven when you accept and believe in Jesus Christ. We need to see the urgency of what I'm preaching today. And hopefully as you consider where you are that you'll believe and accept Christ. Consideration. Number two, compassion. I'm a little weary of seeing a lot of us Christians going around being frustrated with godless people and unsaved people. I can't believe Antifa and I can't believe this and that and Marxist and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and we get all upset and I understand and I'm there sometimes too, I get frustrated. But do you have a heart of compassion? Because you know, truthfully, there's a lot of people that are headed straight for hell. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he didn't say losers. He could have. He had every right to say that because they were. But instead, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he wept and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem with compassion. Are you weeping over Portland with compassion? Are you saying, man, those losers, maybe we should send them to hell just a little quick, a little earlier. There's this attitude of Christians that, that, that's kind of not very Christ-like, honestly, where we should have compassion that people might be saved because that's what God says. Oh, I would that none should perish. I think in this day of politics and sides and people with, with real strong opinions, we forget as Christians, we have a higher calling. I'm not saying that what those people are doing is right or okay. I'm just saying that you and I have a job to do. And what is that job? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples and baptizing people. That's our number one job, not to complain. That's not one of the C's. Conversion, compassion, complaining, no, it's not that. Consideration, compassion, and then conversion. That people be saved. Go from hell to heaven. Death to life. And that's what you and I have to offer people. Well, but that's your job. That's what we pay you for, man. You're the pastor. You're here. You're the preacher. But do you understand? I get to preach to the choir here. <laughs> you know, preaching to the choir is an idiom. Uh, there was a bulletin in a church, uh, church bulletin that said, um, sermon on hell. Um, what's hell like? And then the next thing said, come and hear the choir rehearse before service. It's like, <laughs> it's like a little typo or whatever in the bulletin that didn't come off very well. But the idea for you and me is you and I are to preach the good news of the gospel. And it shouldn't just come from me, the pastor. It's gotta come from you guys to your neighbors and to the people that you work with because there's a lot of lost people that are truly headed for the most horrific place where all of eternity they will stay. And that's why we are compelled by the Lord to share the good news of the gospel. So what do we do now? Be saved, make sure you're a Christian, share the gospel with the unbeliever. And that's how Isaiah ends his book, talking about the new heaven and the new earth that's coming, but also hell that's real, where the worm dieth not. 
and the fire is not quenched. Pretty heavy stuff. Would you bow your heads please with me? Lord, how thankful I am that we don't have to be afraid. Those of us who've repented of our sins, not that we're perfect, Lord, we don't pretend to be perfect or sinless, but we know that you take our sins and you forgive them. And anyone who wants to be saved, Lord, there for the taking, you just give us a free gift of salvation where you take our sins and put them as far as the east is from the west, where you remember our sins no more, where you will say to us at the gates of heaven, enter in, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, we, we know we didn't deserve any of that, but it's because of your amazing grace that saved our lives, Lord. Saved wretches like us, Lord. We, we know that you are the one who did all that, and we applaud you, we thank you, Lord. It gives us joy to know that we get to go to heaven by your grace. But Lord, I also pray for those who may not know you personally, have not had their sins forgiven, that have not yet repented of their sins. I pray as they might be listening to this sermon that the, the truth, the reality of hell would be a splash of cold water to wake people up to repent of their sins and to be saved by your grace. Lord, tap them on the shoulder right now, that they would just sense their need for your love and your salvation, your mercy. Lord, I wanna see people saved even right now. We know you do too. So Lord, for those hardened hearts, would you cause their, their heart to be re resensitized to the truth? Whatever predisposition they have about heaven and hell and God and the reality of all this, Lord, I pray that you would just give them a sense of the truth of what we've been talking about today. And Christians with that attitude of prayer right now, just stay in prayer and be praying. But if you're not a Christian, whether you're here in this room with us or you're out there on the internet watching with us, I wanna invite you to accept the work of salvation. It's there for the taking. Nothing you deserve, nothing you earn. That's why it's so easy to be saved. God made it easy because he did all the work when God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross, a horrible, torturous death to an innocent man. The only guy that never sinned was Jesus. And he's the guy that died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. And that's why it makes it clear there in Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10, that says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, it says, you will be saved. Oh, what a glorious truth. I'd like to lead you in that confession of faith right now, if that's you. Um, I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you stand up or do anything weird, but right where you're sitting, if you're here and you want that, you wanna confess that confession of faith to be saved, um, that's what makes you a Christian. Not going to church or you know, giving money or uh, you know, being good all the time. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who repents of their sins and says, I wanna be saved by the grace of God. And they accept the work of the cross. If that's you, would you look up at me right now and give me a quick wave so I can acknowledge you? Just wanna give you a nod, see you in the back. Yes, good. Let me just look around. I don't wanna miss anybody. Awesome, good, see you there. Man, the message of heaven and hell is so powerful. I see you in the back, that's great. Anybody else? Yes, cool, good. 
I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. And, and by the way, if you're out there and saying, man, I wish I could raise my hand in the sanctuary, um, you, you can. <laughs> in fact, uh, if you're watching online, there's a number on the bottom of the screen. You can text it right now and, and we'll get it right here uh, at the church to know that you're raising your hand. Just text and say, new believer. Uh, and we'll know that you're out there right now. We'll pray, pray for you. And you can, you can confess Christ right now with all of us in this room. And so I'm gonna pray this prayer and I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out. But those of you that raised your hand, that this is a serious thing. The Lord sees your heart and he's gonna honor your desire to be saved because he's just that good, that gracious. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm saved. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name. Lord, what a joy it is to be able to be a part of salvation that you've done in people's lives. And I pray that you would just bless these folks May they be confirmed in their heart knowing that your grace is sufficient for them. No matter how bad they've been, no matter what sins they've done, Lord, you're able to wash us clean and give us a brand new start. And when we make mistakes, even in the future, you died for those sins as well, once for all. And for that, we're thankful. Give us that hope of heaven. No matter how bad it gets on this earth, Lord, we know that as Christians, we can always look forward to the glory of heaven, to be with you for all eternity. And so we pray, Lord, as we go our way, that you just honor the people with joy. Give them the peace that passes understanding. We pray blessing upon them, Lord, here and online. We commit them into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.